there's a huge debate about whether central banks should be in the business. When you go back to 99, you know, should central banks be in the business of popping bubbles or should they be in the business of cleaning up the mess afterwards? This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. James McIntosh, welcome. Hi, glad to be here. You've been at the Wall Street Journal now for about five years, and before that, 20 years at the Financial Times. Um, and, yeah, that's right. Right, And, and most of the, the writing that I've seen uh, from you, I've been reading you for, for quite a while here, has been around uh, the markets, the economy, and the part that, uh, that I generally gravitate to is investor psychology or market psychology, um, economic psychology. I'm curious as to, to kick it off to get an understanding of why this is maybe what is interesting to you among those different topics I just threw out and, and why you've been writing about these topics so, for so long. Well, I, I, I love the, the puzzle um, that is markets. Um, uh, it's just fascinating. It's endlessly fascinating. There's always a new thing to try and fit together. Um, there's never really an absolutely right answer, or if there is, you you don't know for sure you've got it. Um, and everyone disagrees, of course, because it, it always takes two views to make a market. And so it's just, it's endlessly fascinating. And that's why I'm interested in it and why I write about it. Um, and of course, the things that drive markets, the things that make them go up and down are uh, fundamentals and psychology. Um, and the so I'm, I'm, of course, interested in the fundamentals, which include kind of the, econo you know, the economics, but also um, structural issues around markets and uh, makeup of the companies involved and, and all, the, all these sorts of things. Um, and then the investor psychology, which my my personal background is in both economics and in and in psychology as a at an academic level, um, and uh, I I wouldn't say that anything that I learned at university is in any way useful, but it does reflect my interest. So um, uh, the the uh, the the two aspects of this really are fundamentals and psychology, and if you're going to have any hope of trying to piece together the the market puzzle, you've got to look at both. We've talked about that a lot, and. I mean, to oversimplify a bit, but so Skippy and I have, we have two different styles of investing for our own personal portfolios. He goes more, much more deep value. Um, I'm, I do what I call long trend momentum, where I look at momentum over long periods of time. And the oversimplification is I often say that my investing is much more based on the psychology of the markets as his, his is much more in the fundamentals of the markets. Neither one is pure in that way, but, uh, but it is, uh, it's, it's interesting to look at both of those takes. Fully agree. Yeah, although I might flip it the other way and say that say that deep value is a is the only reason deep value works is psychology because yeah. the reason something gets to be yeah. deep value is uh, fear of fear of an excessive fear of the bad outcomes. Yeah. Um, so so you could you could argue it the other way around. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah. Dougals, I'm with James on this one. That's actually my take. And when you talk, you know, Ben Graham and, and deep value, it's kind of, that's what um, helps me sleep well at night is, is re, uh, mean reversion and everything else. Um, so I'm with James on that one. James, I, uh, 
I went to business school in Europe, and it's so funny. I didn't even think about this until we started talking to you. But uh, at that time, there was a debate in my business school about the Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal. And I just realized you've worked at both those institutions. Are they similar? Are they different? Can you compare and contrast writing uh, at those two premier financial inst- uh, journals? Yeah, I mean, they're... There's a lot of similarities. I mean, the similarity, of course, the, the deep similarity is both both papers want to get to the truth um, and uh, and invest their resources in trying to do that. Um, I mean, there's obviously quite a lot of, uh, you know, cultural differences between the two, um, uh, not least that, you know, as a, as a Brit, I, of course, find it very, very hard to write in America. And so I'm constantly <laughs> having to twist my sentences to avoid using using words that jar in my ears um but uh but yeah i think that i think the deep similarities are stronger than the differences and and most of the differences are things that would would be hard to explain to non-journalists they're they're about the structure of the journalism and the you know the, the type of approach um rather than the rather than necessarily the outcomes Thank you for that. So, uh, James, there's there's many reasons to have you on, and I'm sure we'll love talking to you because I think you're just a wealth of uh, information and expertise as it relates to the markets. The reason for the show is is very similar to the reason you're a journalist. We just find it endlessly fascinating and think it's it's fun to debate. The article that really kept, caught our eye recently, although Dougals and I both uh, pretty much read all of your stuff, I think, Came out September. You can feel free to buy like two copies of the paper to you know ensure you've really got it. Hey, does the so does the digital subscription work? Because I'm currently a digital subscription. <laughs> I need to know if I should switch over to help you guys out. Yeah. So there's an article that came out on September 8th. It's called "Digital Currencies Pave the Way for Deeply Negative Interest Rates." I think this is just just fascinating. Um, I think it's so good, but it's also pretty complex. So. We were thinking we'd, we'd try and walk through point by point with you to establish kind of why interest rates are important, how they tie to bonds, you know, the foundational stuff. We'll pretend uh, we have a third grader listening or something and then talk about some of the nuance and some of the, the interesting aspects around if you assume this hypothesis is true, where that leads. So yeah. could you start us off with some foundational uh, so I mean, the absolute right. basic here is what is a central bank digital currency? Um, and of course, you hear digital currency, you think Bitcoin. This isn't Bitcoin. This is uh, electronic money. So in that sense, it's it's got a par- parallel to Bitcoin, but issued by a central bank. Um, now, there's very few that do this at the moment. There's a there's a couple um, that have that are experimenting. Um, there's a couple that have moved on beyond the experimental stage. Uh, China and um, in the Caribbean as well, um, but they're not they're 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 not really they haven't really hit in a big way yet. But all the big central banks are working on it, and what it will look like is probably some sort of app on your phone. It's a bit like a bank account, but held with the central bank. So you'll have a bank account at the Fed. It's much more likely to be like that than it is to be like Bitcoin. So. It's just possible that there'll be blockchain involved, um, but ultimately you as a consumer wouldn't need to know that. It wouldn't matter mm-hmm. um, in the same way it does with something like Bitcoin. So it's, it's much more likely to look to you or look to us like a bank account, but instead of being a bank account with JP Morgan or with um, 
you know, any of the any of the mainstream banks or your little local bank, it'll be at the Fed um, or at the Bank of England or at the European Central Bank. The reason that really matters is, of course, they can't go bust. So there is there is no risk to this. This will be the safest form of money. But in the long run, the expectation is that physical banknotes will wither away. So you'll have this instead. So the idea is this will be something you can use instead of a physical banknote. Mm-hmm. And technologically, we st- there's a huge amount that's still unknown because most of the decisions are still to be made. It could be that you'll be able to transfer money from me to you without anyone else knowing about it from this. Yes. So in that sense, that would be a slight, somewhat different to a bank account at, at JP Morgan. But it would be... You know, we don't know if that's the case. Um, we don't know if that'll happen at all. Uh, but that would make it much more like physical cash if they did allow that. Um, we don't know what will happen if you lose it. Um, will it be like physical cash that it's just gone? You lost it. Hey, tough. Um, or will it be or you get hacked? Hey, tough. Or will it be that, you know, that sort of thing happens? You can go to the central bank, just as you can go to your bank and say, hey, something went wrong, you know, can I get a refund? And, you know, JP Morgan might say no, but it's well within their capability to give you one if they chose um, in a way that it isn't obviously for physical cash. So there are, there are similarities, there are differences. Um, the reason it really matters is that at some point in the long term, of course, this thing is likely to pay interest. Mm-hmm. Now, I suspect when it first starts, it won't pay interest. It'll be like cash. It'll probably be capped, so you can probably only hold, well, we don't know, maybe a few hundred bucks, maybe a few thousand bucks. We don't know where the limit will be, but there'll be some sort of limit, at least to start with. In the long run, that limit might or might not survive. We don't know. Um, so uh, the important thing that comes out of all of this is there's a lot we still don't know because yes. simply that, that nobody knows because the decisions genuinely haven't been made yet by the central banks themselves and by the, in some cases, governments will have to pass laws to allow this. Um, and in the short run, it won't have any impact really on anything very much because it'll run in parallel to physical cash. Yeah. And here's where it gets really interesting. So do you believe that once they've got this, that in the long run, physical cash will survive. Well, already, if you look at the countries that are furthest ahead, Sweden's probably the furthest ahead in the world on, on the loss of physical cash. Almost no one uses physical cash. Like, what's mm-hmm. it for? Um, you can pay absolutely everywhere with your Visa or MasterCard, um, and you just don't need physical cash. And that's one reason Sweden has been pushing hardest to do some form of digital currency, central bank digital currency, um, because Sweden's really worried about handing over its entire payments mechanism to a couple of very large global monopolies, or duopoly in this case. Um, it's, it's bothered about that. It wants that, it thinks there should be a public sector alternative. So if I want to pay you, a cut of that doesn't have to go to someone in the financial services industry. Um, yeah. That, central bank can provide it. So I was going to jump in there and reset because I think this is the first foundational block. So I think it's uh, reasonable to assume that this is the way a lot of governments will head uh, to towards digital currency. I think your point around 
if that is block blockchain based obviously if it's government based it won't be a decentralized currency like a bitcoin but it could be blockchain based it could be non-blockchain based it could be like paypal or jp morgan or whatever um and then when that runs in parallel with physical cash i think it's also reasonable to assume that at some point i don't know if that's five years or 30 years um you move to a point where you're almost a cashless society i think that's kind of foundational block one here yeah exactly and i think at some point once you get to that point once you get to the point which sweden is already approaching and indeed other places are moving that way where you actually can't use cash the shops refuse to accept it if you start moving that way then at some point society at large says well what's the point why are we wasting all this money printing physical banknotes that nobody uses or nobody can use and they just you know all these coins that sit down the back of the sofa um what what's the point uh, we're quite happy with this and what i think once everyone gets used to this idea and whether it's a feels like a bank account or it feels perhaps like a qr code the chinese financial system has shifted to operating primarily with qr codes at a retail level for payments um the, you know whatever system it is that it moves to i think we'll probably all get comfortable with that and then we'll just start saying why are we wasting all this money printing banknotes that, that nobody wants or uses um, and certainly from the point of view of the central bank and the government, it's much more efficient if they can get rid of them because it's quite, yes. whilst, it, whilst economically in the grand scheme of things, it's not that big a deal, uh, it, is, it is still a cost. What is the importance of physical cash specifically um, and its relation to the economy and, and interest rates versus digital? Yeah. So we'll say here what what really interests me about all of this and the reason I was writing about it in the first place is the potential implication for monetary policy, which is the really interesting thing here. Um, there are also some other things that I don't know if you want to get into about bank stability and bank runs and the like. But but the thing I the thing in this particular article I was focusing on was monetary policy. And the reason it matters is that if you have negative interest rates. So what you would do and certainly what I would do if the. If, if my bank said interest rates are minus 5% now, we're gonna, every year we're gonna, your, your savings are gonna take a 5% haircut. Um, if my bank said that, obviously the first thing I'd do is move to a different bank. If all the banks said that because the Fed or the Bank of England or the European Central Bank had set rates at minus 5%, then clearly what I would do is I would withdraw as much cash as I could conceivably feel comfortable with. I'd probably invest in a damn good safe and I'd stick as much physical cash as I could in it because that earns zero. And zero looks great if the interest rate is minus five. That's a, that's a screaming bargain. So as long as physical cash exists, there's a limit to how low interest rates can go. So we used to think they couldn't go below zero because people would withdraw lots of cash. It turns out they can go a bit below zero. So in Switzerland, they're minus 0.75%. Um, in Europe, they're negative. Um, and... People haven't withdrawn huge amounts of cash. There's been a bit of a pickup, but not a huge amount, uh, primarily because actually there is a cost to storage. So you you have a you know you you probably want if you're going to if you're going to store a huge amount if you're going to store millions in cash, you're going to worry about fire, for example. You don't worry about your bank burning down, right? It doesn't matter if your bank burns down because your money's in a in a bank account. Yes. You really do worry if your warehouse full of dollar bills burns down. That matters a lot. So the cost to physical cash, to hoarding physical cash, uh, you worry about theft, all of these sorts of things. So you can quantify that cost via insurance. Um, the and, but but also convenience. 
that if you literally had, you know, two million dollars in physical banknotes, and you decide that you want to go and buy a load of shares instead, or you want to go and invest it in bonds or buy a new house, it's going to be really hard, right? You've got to some you've got to hire some sort of physical security truck to drive it to the bank, arrange with the bank that you're going to pay in two million dollars in physical cash. These sorts of things are quite hard to do, and you know. Frankly, if you try and pay in more than $10,000 in physical cash, you're probably going to get quite a few questions asked and some funny looks. So there's some there's some issues there's some issues here with there's some issues here with um, with using physical cash that do allow rates to go a bit negative. Um, big study by the European Central Bank last year concluded they could probably go to minus one. Um, not everyone agrees, uh, and they haven't in fact gone that far negative. Um, but clearly they can't get to minus five. It's just impossible. People would yeah, and I, so I see this as, oh, sorry to interrupt, James, but I didn't mean to. Um, I see this as foundational piece too, right? And I hadn't thought about it this way. I think you framed it so well in the article that there are, uh, there's a convenience factor to a bank account and there are costs to holding physical money. So there is some, uh, you know, 20 years ago, I, I would have never thought negative rates were a thing, but clearly they are. And uh, Elon Musk even has talked about Tesla's bank accounts in Europe losing money month after month because of the negative rates. Um, so the, the, the question then becomes, if you have a fully digital currency and physical uh, money is kind of gone, um, how low can you go, right? And what are the impacts to the economy in terms of potentially um, managing inflation or deflation or um, reviving uh, a stagnant economy? Um, that's kind of point three in this article, right? Yeah. So the so the historically there's been this issue. I'll, I'll keep calling it the zero lower band, even though as has been demonstrated in Europe, it can go below zero, but it's, you know, in Europe, the jargon is the effective lower band. But this zero lower band means that historically monetary policy has been kind of skewed. So you can raise rates as much as you want. So if inflation takes off, I mean, we saw under Volcker back in 1980, mm -hmm. you really could raise rates to levels that people had thought were impossible. You can just jack them up and that will kill inflation kill the economy as well, but you can do that if you want to as a central bank. So monetary policy is unlimited on the upside, as it were, for slowing things down. But on the downside, it's got this limit. It can't go below zero. So you're skewed with what you can do with your interest rates. If you take away that below zero, you, pro you still can't go to an unlimited extent. I mean, at the extreme, you obviously can't have an interest rate of minus 100% because you just destroy all the money in the economy and the whole thing stops working, right? So there's, there's clearly a lower limit. Um, and at some level, long before that, people would stop using, stop holding money. Um, I don't know where it is, but I can't imagine minus 50% interest rates because you, you just, you, you wouldn't hold money. People would move to gold. You wouldn't use checking accounts anymore. Things would just stop being, being usable. Um, but you you gain a whole bunch more flexibility. You can go further negative. Now, at the moment, I should just interject here, stepping back slightly, this isn't going to happen anytime soon. And mm. the central banks all want to keep it quiet. So they all acknowledge this might happen, but they're not going to do it anytime soon, not least because if this happened early on in the introduction of central bank digital currencies, they wouldn't succeed because people wouldn't want them. People would say, well, if this is going to be what happens, 
we don't want to have them introduced. We want to keep physical cash. Thank you very much. You're, so, you're saying that, yeah, you're saying people would rebel against the concept because the digital currency would feel like a punishment in a way and, yeah. and feel more, okay. Yeah. Thank you. And, and I also think that in the, even in the medium term, they're not going to go deeply negative because again, culturally, socially, we just don't accept that, right? It's, it's going to be really hard to get your head around. It was bad enough back in uh, 2000 and I forget which year it was now. 16 17 when the um when negative rates came in and the you know the whole concept everyone everyone really struggled to get their head around the idea but now in europe you know five years of negative rates everyone understands it it's 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 sunk into the psyche it's fine the system operates i mean i say fine it's not fine but the system operates um and uh it hasn't caused any any deep deep crises as yet uh, I don't particularly think you want negative rates for a very long time because I do think there are side effects. But the chuck it forward 20 years and say we've no longer got physical cash, that seems to me plausible. Go forward 20 years, probably before that in many countries, but go forward 20 years. No longer got physical cash, it's not possible anymore. And you have a deep recession. So you then have a central bank, a central bank that's already gone negative, say, so let's say Europe. People understand that in a deep recession, rates go negative, that's fine. Would they go to minus one and a half instead of minus a half? I think absolutely. And then the next time, would they go minus two and a half instead of minus one and a half? Well, if it had worked, I think society as a whole would accept that. So I think these things don't come overnight. You don't get oh, the Fed's introduced a digital dollar and decided that rates are minus five, right? It doesn't happen like that. It's going to have to be introduced and we're going to have to have societal buy-in. But I, I can see how that could happen, let's say. I, I can't be sure it will happen, of course. You might not get societal buy-in. You might get Congress writing a law that says you can't have negative rates, mm -hmm. for example. Um, these things are possible. But I think in certainly in places that already have negative rates, completely plausible to think that in a deep recession in 20 years time you get very negative rates you go minus five minus seven and that that's quite important and i do think it it is at least plausible that that happens in the states as well although as i say the states we haven't even had small negative rates yet so there's there's still much more societal resistance there's this is this is getting uh, off of the article a little bit, but something that just came to mind is around uh, parts of society that don't necessarily have alternatives of where they can put their money, um, like the lower income parts of society. I was thinking about negative interest rates, and if if you have your money in whatever bank, you know, with the, with the Fed, there's negative interest rates there. They're trying to promote you. They're trying to push the idea that you can then be spending. Like you have money elsewhere, but if you can't spend the money because you need it for, for life, are you kind of stuck in this, in this odd place, right? Where having money in the bank doesn't work, having money outside the bank doesn't work. I'm just, I was, I'm just kind of playing with that uh, intellectual, I guess, kind of thought process, thought experiment right now. I mean, from an, from, so from an intellectual perspective, rather than a kind of uh, how it actually feels like perspective, uh, remember that nominal interest rates aren't really what matters so what matters what really matters if you're in that position is your buying power and their interest rates are already deeply negative right um so i mean food yeah. prices are soaring you're still earning zero on your bank account or on your physical cash um 
you know, what's the what's the situation there? Well, you you really haven't got any choice, right? I mean, if you're homeless and you operate in a cash economy, um, you you when you go and buy food, it costs a lot more. And to the extent you have savings, which I'd suggest is not not much of an extent if you're homeless, yeah. right? But to the extent you have any cash, every day it devalues a bit as food prices go up, um, uh, or as or as rental goes up. You know, if you're if you're trying to stop being homeless, you know these are these are genuine these are genuine public policy problems. But I don't think they're unique to the question of negative interest rates because it's it's real interest rates after inflation that are what matters here and they've been negative now for a very very long time it, it gets back to your point around uh, people in the streets if it happens too quickly i think uh, i picture the all the images from the 1970s right of, of people in the streets around inflation at that time and they're probably it you're right it's effectively the same um, but psychologically it will feel different um, yeah. although yeah from the thought experiment perspective it's the same yeah. Yeah. And of course, it's that it's those people in the streets. I mean, well, not in the streets as such, but it's the strikes and the yeah. union power at the time that entrenched inflation. Because if you if everyone if inflation's running at 10 percent and everyone demands a 10 percent pay rise to keep up, then inflation can't really fall because those people are going to go and spend that extra 10 percent mm-hmm. and probably push prices up even more and then demand even more. And you get the, the wage price spiral. Um, that is one of the reasons that the Fed ended up you know, jacking up rates and throwing a large number of people out of work. Um, so you sort of have to be have to be careful about, you know, exactly how these things interact. But um, yes, I agree. It's, you know, the people are tied to the nominal. People think in nominal terms, not in real terms, um, in, in at least in countries that haven't had recent hyperinflation. Um, and if you think in nominal terms, it just... It feels weird. It feels really weird to have negative interest rates, right? It's, you know, I mean, you know, you know, just over the border. I'm in London at the moment, but just over the border in France, they have negative interest rates. But it's, it, I still, I still find it weird. <laughs> yes, we we've actually, and I do want to get back to the article because I I want to tie the interest rate change to potential bond prices because I think that's a fascinating element. But but on this point, we've been debating, you know, you hear people on the show we've been debating, you hear people make parallels to now to the 70s. And it seems like there's not a, a Volcker in the U.S. government in any way. It doesn't seem like there's any appetite to consider raising rates if inflation runs out of control. Do you have any thoughts on those parallels and maybe if it might be appropriate to consider raising rates in the near future for the um, US government or? Well, I think at the moment, the belief is, the belief at the Fed is that this is transitory um, and that you've got a bunch of things driving inflation which are temporary issues. So supply Mm -hmm. issues, um, uh, uh, primarily supply issues actually, um, but also the temporary boost in demand from the excess savings left over from the pandemic stimulus. Um, and once those are worked out, the Fed thinks, and so do the markets, and so do almost all economists, that inflation will come back down towards its target. Now, there's a question about just how transitory things are. And I think the Fed is on the optimistic side of thinking that we'll be back. I think their forecast is 2.1% for next year. And I suspect it'll be, it'll be still above that. But nonetheless, it's, it's not going to be running at 
you know, a kind of annualized pace of, of 10% next year, unless something has gone very wrong. Now, the, there is a risk, of course, there's always a risk of this stuff. Um, but if you raise rates when inflation is up because of a supply shock, you run the risk of making things even worse for people. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I mean, the, the most recent example of that was 2012 when ECB raised rates. Um, uh, and of course, that, that was followed by a very, very long recession. Um, they raised rates then because primarily because oil prices were up a lot and they worried that that would feed through into inflation expectations and into wage rises and then become a uh, self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm-hmm. The Fed thinks that what's going on at the moment still isn't really feeding through into widespread expectations that inflation will stay high. But I think if it did feed into that, so people came to believe that we were going to have, say, 5% inflation now sort of permanently instead of 2%. I think if if the Fed thought that we'd all come to believe that, they'd be very worried, and they might well raise rates. Actually, that's one of the things that would that would push them. Um, certainly, they would be discussing raising rates. Whether they actually would, you know, I mean, it depends where you sit on the conspiracy theory spectrum about the Fed. Um, but um, but certainly that would that would be deeply worrying. But at the moment, I can see why they're not. I mean, I think they're. I don't. It, it's not obvious how raising rates would help if you see what i mean like you're not going to get more container shipping and therefore lower prices because you raised interest rates um so it would only be if you're worried about people coming to expect higher inflation and that becoming self-fulfilling that's something that then raising rates would help but at the moment it's not obvious we've got that yeah i mean i've read that inflate or expectations are a key aspect of inflation taking hold and that's my worry at the moment but the people at the Fed are, are, are better educated to attack this problem than I am. Uh, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't rely on them being right. Um, <laughs> and, and certainly not on, on, I mean, no one has a good way of measuring inflation expectations. There's lots of ways out there, but none of them are really any good. Um, not least because measuring inflation is itself a little bit of an art. Um, but the, you know, it's, it doesn't seem that there's a widespread belief that this inflation is permanent. Let's be yes, agree. Like that. So it's at least plausible that the Fed is right, um, that, that it's transitory, even if a bit less transitory than they're arguing. So then if we hop back into the article and, and tie together the end piece, which, which I also think is just such a fun thought experiment, you talk about a deeply negative interest rate environment uh, relating to government-based digital currencies and the impact on bond prices. I think because you have a lower range in interest rates, the public could get, and correct me if I don't say this correctly, the public could have more faith that the central bank could navigate us through ups and downs of the economy and therefore uh, be more bullish on a quicker recovery, which could actually cause bond prices to go up. Bond Um, yields yields would, not bond prices. Yes, yes, thank you, thank you. Very good clarification. Let's let's say economists rather than the public, but yes. Okay. The basic so take if you take a step back and say, well, what how how does a how is a ten year bond yield linked to the Fed interest rate? It's not well. You, if you look at a chart of the two, it's not obvious that there's a very tight link, right? If anything, it's it, they move in opposite directions. But the 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 
logic goes that a 10-year bond yield is equivalent to 10 one-year bond yields over the period. And that it's that plus or minus some risk premium, because there's, there's, there's a risk if you've locked your money up for 10 years that things don't turn out as you expect. The risk premiums reflects, if, if one way of thinking about it is it reflects supply and demand and the, the 10 one-year bond yields or the 100 one-tenth of a year bond yields or whatever it is you choose to do, 3,650 one-day bond yields, um, uh, reflects the uh, fundamentals. The fundamentals in this case being the Fed, where the Fed sets interest rates. That's the main determinant that, you know, of, of the long-term bond yield. Um, the risk premium can be quite significant, but it's kind of within a percentage point up or down, let's say, um, over that, you know, added on to the top of what that average is over the period. And that average over the period, really, if you think about where the Fed rate is going to be, that should be determining where the bond yield sits. Mm -hmm. So if you think of that as your basic model for bond yields, you then say, well, what makes the Fed rate go up and down? Well, if the Fed raises rates, what happens? Well, a basic economic model is that the economy is slower than it otherwise would have been. People, people borrow less and save more, so you don't get the, the big economic boom you might have had. Um, you, you might still get an economic boom, but not as big as it would have been. Um, so if the Fed, if you think that the Fed is going to raise rates, should you buy or sell future bond yield, 10-year uh, uh, bonds, well, it's not immediately obvious. So if if they raise, say, say, say I told you that tomorrow the Fed was going to raise rates to 5%, right? You'd be, you'd be obviously, the first thing you'd do is dismiss it as nonsense, because that clearly isn't going to happen. <laughs> but if it did happen, it would almost certainly plunge the economy into a deep recession. And you would then expect that, well, what's going to happen? Well, the Fed's going to cut rates, right? The economy is in a deep recession. It's going to be under huge pressure politically and everything else to cut rates. And that probably bond yields are going to fall because that's what bond yields do in a deep recession because people expect the Fed to cut rates. So the, the bond yield is really a sort of future on, on uh, the Fed funds rate. And if we're expecting that the rate will be cut, then bond yields should go down. Now, obviously, if we're expecting that the rate will be cut, normally you look at the 10-year because it sort of abstracts away from any given rate move because it's a, a long, you know, over-the-cycle move. But if we're talking about negative rates, we've suddenly got a really interesting thing because we don't know. Does it make bond yields go up or down? Well, it means that on average, if again, we think about the average, so on average, at the moment, bond yields pretty much have to be positive. Certainly, the Fed funds rate has to be positive, right? Again, there's that risk premium I talked about. You just about could imagine a 10-year bond going negative, but it's quite hard. But certainly, the lowest you'd expect the Fed funds to be over the next 10 years is zero. Yeah. So yeah. if I said, well, actually, the Fed funds can now go negative because it that's possible, the immediate mathematical response is, well, that means that on average... I would expect not knowing the future, not knowing what's going to happen, but on average, that's going to be lower. That average is going to be lower now because previously it had to stop at zero. And now it could go to minus two, right? So on average, I should expect it'll be a bit lower mm -hmm. without any information about the future, without knowing what's going to happen to the economy, without projecting anything. I just think, well, sometimes it will go negative. 
Whereas in the past, it wouldn't have gone negative, therefore it's gonna be lower in the future. But then you come to the secondary effect, which is, well, if it's negative, and if you believe negative rates work, that should boost the economy, which means they'll get back to positive again and get back to higher positive more yes. quickly. So rather than being stuck at zero for six years, maybe they go to negative three for a year and then back up to two for the rest of the time. So on average, your rate is actually higher than it was before. And so then you get into the question, well, do we believe that negative rate interest rates work? And that's a much more difficult economic question, right? And frankly, it's an ideological question primarily if you look at the divide of people. But if you believe that negative interest rates do work and that deeply negative rates of work, then that going to minus five might stimulate the economy more quickly. So you spend less time in recession, less time at zero, and more time at a higher rate. So on average, your rate ends up being higher because of this flexibility to go lower which is mathematically weird, but because of the feedback loop into the economy. And then you say, well, on that, in that case, bond yields should go up. And of course, this matters now. This, the, the reason this moves from being you know, an academic discussion on a podcast to being real-world investment is that in the 30-year bond, if we go back to where we started, well, over the next 30 years, we'll probably have a digital dollar. Exactly. We might well have no more no more physical cash, and therefore the Fed might easily be able to go negative. So if we think, well, in 25, year, 25 years time, interest rates are going to be minus five, that makes quite a difference to, I mean, it's only a small difference on a 30-year bond, but it does make a difference to a 30-year bond compared with if we think they're going to be at zero. And we kind of need a view. Does that help the economy or not? You articulated that perfectly. James, I know we're close to time. We have two questions and, and Dougal's might have another question for you. We have two questions that we ask all the guests on the show. Do you have a, a few more yeah, minutes to stick around? One, one thing that came to mind, this gets back to the <clears throat> psychology aspect as you were talking a little bit, and also thinking about the, the Fed's responsibility, which is primarily to the economy, right? You think about employment as well as inflation. However, if you think about where the markets are, one thing I think that's fascinating is it's Tina, right? There is no alternative right now. And what Tina has, at least in, in my view, I don't think this is a rocket science view, but in my view, uh, Tina's led to so much risk-taking right now that the, the longer that the interest rate right now stays low, because you, you, were, you were discussing how raising interest rates right now, it could be detrimental to the economy. I'm also thinking that the longer it stays low, the more people can say we're not in a bubble, right? There are certain, certain folks that are saying we're not in a bubble. However, we're in some version of a bubble. I think you wrote an article, I can't remember the exact title, but if it, if it swims like a bubble and it looks like a bubble, something like that, right? And the longer you keep those rates low, the more risk-taking, I think on both the corporate side as well as on the, in the individual side, I can see us taking, the more corporate debt we have such that when interest rates do go up, which they will happen eventually, I imagine, the more debt people have and the more debt companies have, it seems like we might be building up just a, a bubble that you, it's too big to fail, right? But almost too big that it can't, right? At the same time. Uh, and so thinking about the, the difference between protecting the economy from rising interest rates right now and protecting the market to protect the economy from rising interest rates right now is, is the, the basis of that, that question and thought. So it gets into a very deep problem that you know, central bankers and economists only really started to grapple with after 2009. 
um, after the catastrophe, um, because there's a school of thought that had picked it up earlier, which had been sort of widely sidelined, um, which is Minsky, um, essentially. And 2007, 2008, you had this Minsky moment where it turned out that all the debt that had built up during an era when interest rates had been relatively low uh, came back to bite you. And Minsky's, Minsky's insight was that uh, the longer you have cheap money, the higher the risk people take. And of course, the more risk people take, eventually it goes wrong. Um, and whilst that is undoubtedly uh, undoubtedly true and, uh, you know, uh, insight into human nature and the nature of markets, the problem, of course, is to say when um, and how much is too much. Um, and the answer is we don't know on either of those situations. And there's a, I mean, frankly, too long to to do in a, as we approach the end of the podcast, but there's a huge debate about whether central banks should be in the business. When you go back to 99, you know, should central banks be in the business of popping bubbles or should they be in the business of cleaning up the mess afterwards? And, you know, that debate was live in 1929, in 2009, sorry, uh, in, in 1999 and probably lots of other times as well. Um, that even if they successfully spot the bubble, it's not obvious whether they should step in to stop it or not. And it's a, you know, there's, there's genuine political and uh, economic questions and monetary questions here that just don't have a simple answer. And some people think, you know, that they have a very strong view one way or the other, but mostly it's because they're ignoring the ignoring all the counter arguments. Um, it's just not simple. Um, and um, you know, it comes back, come, I, I mean, I think at heart it comes back to politics. Are you ready to accept uh, unemployment in order to prevent a bubble? And I think you'd be hard pressed to find any politicians who are. Um, that's, that's my general view. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, the alternative, of course, says, well, it's, it's no business of the central bank. And what if they get it wrong? You know, maybe they think it's a bubble, but in fact, the markets are up a lot because of technological innovation and, you know, structural market shifts and things like that. Well, if they did that, that's a that's a problem, too. Um, and then the, the secondary argument says, well, is it is it you know, do you really want monetary policy set according to what the market does? Um, you know, I mean, ideally not. Um, but the problem is then you get the, the difficulty of, well, in fact, that's exactly what, exactly how monetary policy does work, right? It's all intermediated by markets. That's how it affects the economy in the first place. So there's, a, there's, there's all sorts of really difficult questions that um, probably a little bit long to get into right now, but, but they're very interesting. Yeah, Minty's come up a few times this podcast uh, for that very purpose. But uh, thank you for that. Um, so for the last two questions, uh, I'll throw out one. And Skip, you feel free to, to throw out the other one. How do you invest your personal finances? Well, we can't, uh, as a journalist, I can't just uh, buy and sell. Uh, we have some pretty strict rules. So I'm all in, in um, broad funds and uh, mostly on regular regular um uh you know monthly monthly purchases um i i sadly can't can't do dramatic shifts in my portfolio um except every now and again i could sell and go to cash i guess um but i tend not to do very much um uh, the only the only two 
the only two I, I generally think my I am best at spotting very extreme moments I think the, the best opportunity to be right against the market is to spot very extreme sentiment so um last year in March I thought things were were way overdone everyone was far too bearish um at the at the bottom um and I wrote a big piece saying saying you know everyone's scared it's time to buy um uh, which is fairly straightforward approach and I you know I obviously can't do anything until after I've written it I can't I can't front run my own articles um but I did then go and go and add add some to my portfolio um, and the other two times were in 2007 and in uh, 1998. Um, in 98, uh, when I was a I was a very junior journalist and not really covered by any of this because I wasn't doing anything in Asia, um, I went and bought uh, as much as I could, which is a sum of money now insignificant, but it matched a lot to me then. Um, in in uh, a leveraged Asian fund, which worked out beautifully because I I timed it again purely on sentiment without knowing anything about what was going on really in Asia at the time beyond beyond what I read in the papers um, uh, just on sentiment I timed it nicely um, and uh, again in uh, 2007 uh, I was at the time covering hedge funds and and had a fairly good insight and when everything blew up in subprime uh, that summer I decided so after it started to blow up in subprime but that summer when the market just carried on up and I just thought this is madness um, markets ignoring the obvious. Um, now I wouldn't, I wouldn't in any way claim I knew, I knew what was going to happen and how awful it was going to be. Um, of course, but I, I did dump my, dump my portfolio. Uh, but it's very rare that I do anything. Most of the time, it's on automatic because I, you know, it's, I obviously can't trade individual stocks, and I don't, I don't mostly think I can time the market um, well enough uh to do you know big moves that i'm going to then have to stick with for quite a long period of time i can't i can't try and time little little ups and downs thanks james the reason we ask that is uh some people definitely not you but some people maybe write or say things that differ from how they actually invest their their personal finances and we just like to cut cut straight to the chase and say yeah, yeah. uh what's well, your approach I mean, you know sometimes i'm really quite bearish um, but it's very rare that I'm so bearish that I want to actually dump my whole portfolio. And there's not a lot I can do around the edges. So I can't do a, I can't sort of cut back small amounts or add small amounts. I suppose I could stop, stop monthly investing, but mm -hmm. my administrative capabilities are so weak um, that uh, from a, from a sort of execution point of view, the chances are that if I did that, I would, I would forget to turn it back on again. Um, uh, or I would, turn off too much or lose the password or whatever it is so uh yeah the the uh there's a reason i'm not running running any sort of I mean, quite aside from my views on things you know i i would be hopeless running any sort of fun because i'd i'd never be able to execute when i really wanted to yeah so uh we we are so appreciative of you coming on the show we always wrap with this which is hopefully a fun question uh we like to ask people about their dream retirement and um how that differs from their life today? Dream retirement. Um, I haven't really thought about it. I guess I'd like to keep doing something part-time, um, something active, I, I, involvement in something, whether it's writing or in business somehow. 
um, and I and probably the rest of the time would be uh, on a rock climbing climbing on a rock by a beach. Uh, there's some particularly good rocks by beaches in Thailand, but there's there's plenty in other parts of the world. And yeah, if I could get onto those, I'm hoping I'll be able to retire while my while my uh, arth you know before arthritis kicks in so badly that I can't climb. Um, but uh, that, that's that great. Would that's awesome we are both uh based in colorado in the u.s so if you're ever out here rock climbing give us a holler yeah good place to be i see the i see the the bag in the background there it's, uh, you're obviously ready ready to hit the hills at any moment uh, exactly yeah there's good climbing 10 minutes away from my place so <laughs> well james thank you so much i really appreciate you taking the time we both do um and we just love your stuff so um this article specifically was great, but everything is great and, and your insights, I really enjoyed. Uh, thank you for taking the time. Cool. Well, I've enjoyed the conversation. Thank you.